0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The solar power industry has been growing quickly. Last year, solar accounted for 40% of new electric generating capacity additions in the U.S. Yet the industry faces a number of challenges, including the ending of federal incentives for solar projects and an uncertain future for net metering, both of which have been instrumental in the industry's growth. The coronavirus will also impact solar adoption, at least in the near term, as consumers and businesses focus their attention elsewhere. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with Anne Hoskins, head of federal and state policy at Sunrun, the nation's largest residential solar power company. We'll look at the industry's challenges and at reasons to be optimistic about its prospects, including the role that rooftop solar might play in creating a more resilient electric grid. Anne, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, hello. Thanks for having me.
0: I thought we might start out by having you tell us a little bit about your role at Sunrun and your longer involvement in the electric power industry.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I serve as the chief policy officer at Sunrun. Um, In that capacity, I oversee our policy team as well as our communications team. And we operate in 22 states uh, and in uh, Puerto Rico and in the District of Columbia. We offer service there. So my team is responsible for working with policymakers in all the states and, and uh, districts, uh, as well as at the federal government, because there's some very important uh, federal policies uh, that impact the solar industry. And in addition to that, um, I oversee our corporate communications and policy communications team, uh, which is very integrated uh, in the policy work and critical to the policy work that we do. I joined Sunrun uh, just about three and a half years ago. Uh, moved out from the East Coast, where I'd spent my entire life, and uh, prior to coming to Sunrun, I served on the Maryland Public Service Commission as a commissioner, and it was an incredible experience. I served there uh, for three years, uh, learned a lot about uh, regulation and uh, really the importance of engagement uh, in that process, which was, you know, one of the reasons that I decided to come to Sunrun. I really felt that there was a need. Uh, for greater engagement by alternative service providers and clean energy uh, voices um, in the regulatory process. And just uh, prior to coming to the commission, um, I actually served uh, at a utility as the head of policy for a public service uh, enterprise group or pse uh, for about seven years, uh, oversaw their uh, federal and state uh, policymaking as well. So, You know, when I look at my career, I see myself as really being on you know many different sides of of the energy policy um, sphere, and uh, having a really interesting perspective from having all of those experiences uh, that I think has made me you know a more effective advocate uh, for Sunrun and for the solar industry um, at this point in my career.
0: Now, one of the most important developments in, in residential solar uh, in recent years has been the pairing of solar with battery storage. It, it, Sunrun and other solar companies have increasingly been pushing this. How does storage complement solar power?
1: Uh, oh, it's such an exciting time uh, because of storage. So I mentioned that I you know, joined Sunrun in 2016, and when I arrived... Uh, We were not yet uh, providing batteries along with solar. And now it's a core part of our offering, uh, particularly and certainly in Hawaii. Um, Most customers who who have solar also have storage. Uh, The same goes for Puerto Rico and increasingly the case uh, in California. And our expectation is that, you know, going forward, people are going to see the value of having not just the solar on their roof, but the capability with batteries to have backup power uh, when we have outages which are increasingly frequent unfortunately in California and the wildfire situation um, as well as in areas that I'm more familiar with, you know in the mid atlantic and northeast, you know where not that long ago we were having you know major hurricane events and and significant outages. so with batteries it's it's really changing the um obviously the capacity and the value for customers, right? because now not you know, now they can have a source of backup, but they can also use it to manage when they're using and how they're using their energy. And this is turning out to be really critical in places like California, which have instituted time of use rates, uh, whereby you know energy is a lot cheaper in the middle of the day, very expensive in the late afternoon. And with a battery, customers now are able to, uh, you know, store that energy when it's less expensive, and either use it or share it back to the grid when it's more valuable. So, batteries have really, um, you know, changed the the regulatory conversations, um, and I think are are going to be really critical as we look forward and and try to think about how how will you rebuild this grid, and how can we use these resources, you know, to make a more um, resilient and cost effective grid, and and that's really happening. Uh, Very quickly over the last couple of years, as we've been bringing batteries onto the system.
0: Well, it sounds like in California, where the duck curve has really been an issue, this is a a solution to that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the idea that you know, you know, prior to batteries, there was a concern that there was almost too much clean energy in the middle of the day, which is you know sort of hard to hard to you know really wrap your arms around because there's such a need for us to transform our system to to cleaner energy. But with batteries, you're able to store that energy and use it when it's really needed and and get rid of some of the dirty, you know, gas-fired, oil-fired peaking plants, right? And um, and really use this as a way, as a source of capacity uh, that can be counted on so that we can phase out some of that uh, dirtier energy.
0: Now, how much does storage add to the cost of a typical residential solar system?
1: Well, you know, it really depends on um, how a customer wants to sign up for storage. One of the um, uh, sort of main products that Sunrun offers and and really distinguished Sunrun early on uh, when Sunrun started in 2007 was we offer what we call solar as a service, which is offering uh, PPAs and leasing options for customers where they can put very little money down and pay for a system over the life of that, you know, over a 20 or 25 year period. And so uh, the same will go for for batteries where we're able to offer customers the opportunity to uh, add a battery to their system and pay for it over time. So, you know, when you say how much does it cost a syst- uh, customer, it, it really depends on how they sign up for this. I think that batteries, you know, the prices are, are coming down on batteries. We don't do a lot of cash uh, sales, others do, but I think they go and around the ten or twelve thousand dollar range um, for a battery, depending on the type of battery. Again, with expectations that these costs of batteries are con- are, are on a decline, um, and which is really uh, one of the exciting parts of of working in this area right now is we have seen right in the last decade significant declines in the cost of the solar panels and the solar cells. And and we've been working really hard to drive the costs, what we call the soft costs, out of the solar installation process, and and making a lot of progress. With batteries, we're at the point where we still have a lot of room for the technology costs, right? The 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 um, the cost of those those batteries themselves to come down that cost curve, and that is the expectation from all of the analysts. So what we're looking at now is you know trying to get these systems out to people with options like leasing and PPAs. Uh, So they are affordable. You know, we found in the states where it's really taken off, which which are, you know, uh, California, Massachusetts, New York, states have stepped up and provided incentives, uh, specific storage incentives to encourage early adopters of this technology, which is which is going to serve to help drive the cost down right of that of that technology and, and go down that cost curve. So it's a dynamic time and. Uh, there are affordable options for customers, and we think it's going to become more affordable um, as we move forward.
0: Now, I want to come back to the economics there and, and a number of additional policy issues that I'd like to ask you about. But but before doing that, I'd like to, to talk about another issue, which is obviously very, very prominent right now, and that's the impact of coronavirus on the industry. And And uh, some some recent data from Bloomberg New Energy Finance has projected that overall solar project volumes could fall 30 percent or more this year. Based upon the impact of the virus, Sunrun, as many companies, has laid off workers recently and cut its business outlook for the rest of 2020. Can you tell us more about what you're seeing related to to the coronavirus and its impact on the industry?
1: Sure. I mean, first, I you know have to say that obviously this virus is having a tremendous impact, you know, across the economy, uh, very you know awful human impacts, and um, you know our concern. At Sunrun is, you know, first and foremost for our employees, for our customers, uh, making sure that everything we do is um, consistent with the public health guidelines uh, that we're all living through. You know, we our headquarters is in San Francisco, and we very early on had our employees in our headquarters, you know, work from home, you know, before it was required uh, by the state because we really wanted to make sure. Uh, that anyone who was able to work remotely would work remotely, and so we take that all very seriously. Um, you know, the coronavirus ha- is a is a real challenge for our industry right now because what we do is we bring services to people in their homes, right? And you know, these are really critical services that we're bringing to customers. You know, we're providing energy, uh, which is something that people need really need, right? As they're as they're spending more and more time, and almost all their time in their homes. And particularly in places like California, where we've had, you know, during the wildfire seasons, forced blackouts and shutoffs of electricity. We're very concerned about what's going to happen when we hit wildfire season again this summer and into the fall if the coronavirus um, is still, you know, not under control and we continue to have these uh, stay-at-home orders. So we are working very hard to... Um, one, we've you know certainly we we have stopped all uh, in-person sales activities that you know we were quite active in stores like uh, Costco, Home Depot, um, and we've been able to transition and and do uh, remote sales really effectively, and we're really excited about that. And I think it shows just the ingenuity and the effort of these you know competitive solar companies uh, to try to to try to find a way to continue to serve our customers. Um, so so we have done that. Um, anything that we can do remotely, we're doing remotely. We have um, been working with permitting offices, you know, across the country, uh, talking with them about ways that we can use email and other automated approaches for submitting permitting requests and even for doing um, remote inspections. Uh, we're using drones um, so that you know we don't have to go out to a house to to do the design, right? And so. We've done. uh, We've uh, really made just a lot of progress, and I have to say, in the last few weeks, just really trying to deal with the the challenges ahead of us, and to do it in a way that is limiting um, any kind of interaction uh, with our customers. And then when we do go out and install, which we're we're continuing to do in most places across the country, we're doing it with with no contact approaches. Um, and, and again, really no no uh, contact
0: with the consumers, Mm -hmm. obviously
1: with the consumer. Um, and we are, you know, having our, you know, we have very small, uh, install groups, right? Like up to four people, we're having them all, uh, drive separately. We have safety requirements and, you know, we, we believe that we have put in place, um, the safety measures that are necessary and that still enable us to go forward and provide, you know this this part of the energy infrastructure which you know the federal guidelines have come out and have recognized that you know renewable energy is part of the energy system it is a critical part of our critical infrastructure um we've seen that as well in 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 many of the state orders so that's how we're proceeding we we're going to you know do everything we can to you know continue to be part of the solution for customers and particularly again, in areas where there has not been a reliable energy system. And that's, you know, a really critical thing for us to keep our eyes on. This is a, a terrible crisis that we're under right now with COVID. But we also have the climate crisis, which is still, you know, which we believe is really at the heart of some of the wildfire challenges and the hurricanes and the, the you know, the devastation that, you know, faced Puerto Rico a few years ago. And we really need to keep focused on how are we going to continue to build a more resilient energy system um, and finding a way that we can deal with multiple challenges at the same time, because this COVID situation, you know, is probably is not going away anytime soon. Right. And so we need to, we need to, as a society, uh, you know, be able to deal with that, deal with the the jobs issues that now are, are going to be tremendous coming out of this and also prepare for some of these climate impacts, which unfortunately are not are not going to stop just because we're also trying to deal with COVID.
0: Let's talk a, a little bit more about that, about the resiliency, uh, grid resiliency issue that you just mentioned. And, and I wanted to bring up a, a recent example that involves Sunrun and and um, so uh, Pacific Gas and Electric uh, also relatively recently issued a request for proposals for the development of natural gas powered microgrids uh, to power neighborhoods. Specifically, as you were mentioning earlier. Uh, that the utility has has cut off from the grid to minimize wildfire risk. Um, Sunrun responded to that uh, request for proposal with its own proposal or a paper uh, that proposes a combination of solar power plus storage uh, mixed in with an islandable neighborhood microgrids. Can you tell us about that vision and how you would propose, for example, to replace gas generation with renewables in in that type of situation?
1: Uh, Sure. Thanks. Thanks for that question. And, you know, we, we really do want to encourage utilities and policymakers to think a little more broadly when we talk about microgrids, right, and options for making the grid more resilient. We have the capacity now with these batteries and, you know, residential and commercial solar projects to aggregate those, right, and and pull together, you know, thousands of those systems and have them available so that either, you know, we believe, in, and that's what the paper, our Neighborhood Grid paper was about, it, and and it was put out there as a, a little bit of a thought piece because we really do want to work with the utility industry and, and network engineers and figure out how this could work, but we think that there's the potential that, you know, you don't need to have 100% of the customers in a community having solar and storage you could have a subset of that, and it could be um, segmented off um, at a substation level, and uh, we could figure out how to basically create a mini grid, right? Versus maybe what you would make traditionally have considered a microgrid. So we we believe that there's a potential to do that because right now we have the capability to, and when, when we do put out, and and this is our proposal up in New England, uh, with New England ISO. You know, we've committed to uh, install 5,000 solar and storage units over the next couple of years, and then those would be aggregated and called on as a source of capacity um, and and be available um, in in that market. Uh, We're doing the same thing. uh, You know, we've made the same type of proposal down in Los Angeles with uh, LADWP, where the mayor of Los Angeles has said he would like to, or his goal is to shut down three Gas fired generation plants by the end of this decade. And we've done an analysis to show that there's enough capacity of solar and, ba- you know, to put solar and batteries on homes in the LA area, in the LA DWP territory, that that could make up for uh, one of those three plants. So it's absolutely, you know, we can do it now, right? We know we have the technology now, uh, the costs have come down such now that you can aggregate these so that you're essentially, you know, pulling power together uh, from multiple homeowners and businesses in a territory, rather than having to rely on a large centralized plant and the centralized infrastructure like the transmission and distribution system, which we have found in times of climate change is not very reliable. So that's the concept.
0: So I'd like to ask you about some of the major policy issues impacting the industry right now. And outside coronavirus, one of the major concerns seems to be the ramping down of the solar investment tax credit or the ITC. The renewable energy industry sought to have the the tax credit extended as part of the recent $2 trillion federal stimulus package, again, linked to the coronavirus. That didn't happen. What will the industry do next, given that the extension wasn't granted?
1: Well, we're still working on it. You know, we we came very close to it being included in the December timeframe. Uh, we're having conversations as part of these stimulus packages. You know, we understand there's going to be more uh, because, sadly, the the situation is is so dire uh, for our country right now. And we think this is you know completely appropriate uh, as one of the solutions to come out of these stimulus packages. You know, for a few reasons. One, again. We really need to be considering, we we need to be working on the climate challenge. We can't be setting that aside and hoping it's going away because we have this challenge. And so that's something that, you know, we've we've had great advances both in the distributed front as 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 well as the utility scale, you know, clean energy sources, you know, over the last decade. This isn't a time to stop that. And one of the big drivers has been access to capital through the investment tax credit. It's a tried and true method of accessing private capital for us to be able to go out and do the things, like I mentioned, where we're able to finance systems up front and then have customers pay for them over time. That's been really the single most um, valuable tool for expanding access to uh, home solar and, uh, you know, any kind of distributed energy because customers don't need to put all of that uh, capital up front themselves, right? They can pay for it over time, and that's been the investment tax credit that has fueled that. Investment tax credit has also resulted in, you know, the largest job creation. Um, you know, solar installers, I think, were one of the fastest growing uh, categories of jobs uh, around the country until COVID hit. And so, it's really important for us to think about that when you're looking at the stimulus, you know, goals. Here is a, you know, here is a policy that we know how to use and that will put capital in the hands of companies that know how to use it and put people to work and bring a valuable um, product out to the public. So we are continuing to have those conversations. Uh, One thing I, you know, want to clarify, it's, you know, obviously it's not ending uh, right now. It it went from uh, 30 to 26 um, percent. Uh, it would go down to 22%. You know, we think that it's an important time, you know, for policymakers to realize that that would be a very significant reduction at the absolute worst time. So, uh, you know, we're hopeful that uh, with so many, uh, you know, customers around the country, people around the country who believe in renewable energy and who want it, uh, so many folks whose whose jobs are related to uh, to this growing part of the uh, economy uh, that our uh, legislators and and the president will see how critical it is to include this in, in one of these packages.
0: You know, absent the current health crisis, I want to ask, um, what was the industry expectation for uh, the development of solar once that ITC uh, does expire? Was the belief that the industry is now strong enough and solar is economic en- enough that it, it could stand on its own without that?
1: we've been planning on this, right? as a good company, you know would, in terms of being prepared and making sure we're going to be able to do everything we can to provide an affordable product uh, for customers uh, who again are are you know increasingly wanting to make this transition and and have a source of energy that they can control themselves. And what we've been really doing is trying to focus on the soft cost part of the of the cost stack. You know we've we've had advantage of, technology, as I said, the decline in price of the solar panels, the solar cells, the, you know, all the different parts of the the product. Uh, but what we really need to focus on is are the soft costs. And those are things such as, you know, delays that are caused from the permitting process, delays that are caused from interconnection, um, you know, uh, the cost of acquiring customers, right? And so one of the things that's been, I guess, you know, as I said, I don't want to say positive, but something that, that's come to light for us and that we've worked on in these last three weeks, three, or four weeks with COVID, um has been, it's really forced us to be really pushed forward on those soft cost issues, not really on a cost basis, just out of necessity. And that goes to issues like permitting. Um we have had we have reached out and had a lot of success with permitting offices. Uh, talking with them about, you know, there there are other ways that are less burdensome for us to get you this information for you to permit our projects and thereby reduce the timeline because it's the timeline that also makes these projects quite costly. You know, the longer they get drawn out, you know, customers get frustrated um, and and, you know, there's multiple, you know, extra touch points that have to go in. There's multiple trips to homes that have to be made. So to the extent that we can simplify the process – and expedite the process, it's, it's going to take serious costs out of the cost stack of putting these projects on. And we did some research on this a couple of years ago where we looked at um, solar installations in Australia and in Germany and saw that they were about a dollar a watt cheaper of a, you know, on average, maybe a $3 a watt cost of, of putting a system, a solar system on a roof. And it really came down to things like they had automatic interconnection. They had automatic permitting, you know, the you'd put the permit, you, you would, you know, have approval if you were able to meet certain criteria. And then, you know, the, the solar provider was at risk to make sure they did it correctly when the, you know, when they were inspected, right? And that the benefit of expediting that process was to take a whole, you know, a third of the cost out of this process, you know, so one of the things you know we've been very focused with um, on permitting. Uh, the federal government has supported a project that uh, the National Renewable Energy Labs is working on that we call solar app, uh, which is going to be tested here over the over the probably next half a year with uh, building offices around the country, uh, which would basically automate the process and have built into it all the criteria from the different types of um, you know, agencies that that look out for you know safety and and um, the criteria for those are going to be built into this app that what we're planning to do is to try to make that available for free for uh, permitting offices around the country with the hopes that this really will simplify the process for both the public officials as well as the solar companies. But the other area that's going to be my next priority on this is to work with the utilities to find a faster way to do the interconnection. You know, we know that we've got some utilities, and California utilities are, are really very good on interconnection, and they can do it now. They've automated it a few years back, and, and they can, you know, go through the process in a couple of days. We have other utilities where it's weeks, right? And it just doesn't make sense. These projects are not that complicated, uh, they don't put that much stress on a system. You know, they're not large, you know, projects that, you know, potentially are really going to impact the distribution system in any significant way. And so that is an, that is a big goal of ours that we're going to be working with uh, commissions across the country uh, using, you know, technology and proof technology with uh, inverters uh, to get to the point where, you know, we are able to... Uh, limit the impact that any of these systems could even potentially have on the grid and hopefully, you know, work arm in arm with the utilities to make this a more efficient process.
0: One other challenge I want to ask you about, uh, we've talked about the investment tax credit, which is uh, federal subsidy. At the state level, uh, there is net metering, and that allows residential solar owners to sell their excess electricity from their rooftop system into the grid. A number of states and utilities have pushed to reduce net metering payments or eliminate net metering altogether. How important is net metering to solar economics, and, and where do you see this going?
1: Sure. Uh, Net metering is really important. You know, it's been the foundation for what really enabled customers to have access to solar on their roof, not just have access to it, but then to be able to, you know, interact with the utility, share energy when they weren't using it, um, hopefully, you know, to provide value back out into the grid and then to interact with the grid to have energy from the grid when they needed it. And so you know one of the real advantages from metering from the beginning has been its simplicity, right? That you're basically having your meter that's running backwards uh, when you're not when you're not using electricity. And that's been a great um, I think policy for or mechanism for supporting a policy that is trying to transition to a cleaner and more distributed grid. So, you know, at the heart of it, you know, we believe that it's it's been an incredibly successful regulatory uh, strategy and, and policy. Um, you know, we know certainly we've had net metering cases around the country for quite some time. This became a big battle cry for the utilities. I'm not sure still why. You know, remember, I mean, if you look at it, we're still a very, very small part of the you know, generation uh, resource um, in the country uh, that we've got some parts of the country that you know it's so small that you just sort of wonder why this is you know why why this is what the utilities would focus on or or even regulators in in some states, but it is and I think you know we've had many studies done over the years that have shown that that they really call into question this assertion that there is a cost shift. It really depends on what you're valuing, right? And if you're looking at uh, the potential, you know, the capacity value, the the fact that when you get uh, enough of the solar that you're able to uh, replace the need for very expensive transmission and distribution upgrades. You know, those are some of the issues that, that come into play when you do these analyses. And there's certainly been, you know, many, many studies that have shown net positive benefit, certainly not just for the resident, but for all rate payers. That being said, you know, we know that, that you know at at the heart of this issue is that utilities have you know made these sort of sunk cost these investments in their grid and as customers reduce their demand whether it's through energy efficiency whether it's through doing their own solar whether it's by you know turning their you know TVs off you know um what happens is you know when you have a system that is paid for on a you know volumetric basis on a per kilowatt hour basis you know, those customers who have reduced their demand from the utility are paying less of it. So there's, but the answer is not necessarily that that's a cost shift. It also could be, maybe it's time to question, you know, how we are spending money on this grid. And are the utilities having the incentives to be as efficient as they should be, knowing very well right now that the trend is that more and more customers want to go, you know, generate their own power. And that's one of the, the issues that I think is really critical As regulators take a look at things, you know, we're referring to it as grid modernization. They don't talk about it that way quite as much now, but, you know, really looking and trying to figure out through planning what is, you know, what should the grid of the future look like and how do you build it in a way recognizing that you're going to have these resources and that, yes, those customers are going to be providing value back to the grid. And that's the other element of this. So, So one, you don't want to overbuild the grid knowing that there are going to be fewer you know kilowatt hours to pay for that grid. You want to build it smartly and it's got to be safe. Uh, but two, you also, you know you also really want to look and see how can you use the resources that those customers are investing in as effectively for the whole grid. And that's where grid services and batteries, I think, are really going to change the whole discussion around this. It's not going to say there shouldn't be compensation for the energy. I think there should definitely be compensation for the energy that's shared and it should be fair. Um, But there are also other values that, you know, by aggregating these resources, by using the batteries so that we can have the power, as we said earlier, you know, used later in the day when you would otherwise, these utilities would otherwise have to be calling on really expensive peaking plants. That is really going to, you know, I think as we look at these studies going forward, we're going to see that there is very strong grid value from us redeveloping this grid and we want to make sure that customers have the incentive to be part of that solution and that we can get private capital helping to pay for that and not have to rely hundred percent on utility capex. so long answer I know but I'm you know we have a few uh, net metering cases that are you know scheduled to come up in the coming year and you know part of what I'm going to do in those cases is to say let's step back for a second here. We want to encourage, we have to remember to want to encourage customers to help invest in this. And so what you don't want to do is to, you know, jump too quickly to pull back on the compensation. Because, you know, one example that that is very instructive is to look at Hawaii. You know, Hawaii a few years back, um, I think they were worried, you know, in that place, they had like way more capacity of the solar, you know, than any other state is anywhere near to hitting. I don't know, it was... 20, 30% 20, 30% of the, of the I think, residents um, had solar on their roofs. And I think they were, you know, they were worried that maybe they were hitting a capacity for their distribution system. So they just restricted any um, exports into the grid and basically, you know, restricted net metering. And the result is customers all went out and got batteries, which was great uh, for us. You know, we have a lot of customers with batteries. But then the commission realized, wait, this isn't very efficient. Why would we want those customers just to keep all the energy for themselves? We should come up with, you know, regulations when we get to that level of penetration, where we can smartly use their resources, right? And they actually came up with, you know, rules that that allow smart export. I think they refer to it as. So that's really what we have to be thinking about is. You know, you don't want to you don't want to have policies that are going to encourage customers to want to separate from the grid. Right. We really want to encourage policies that are going to want customers to integrate with the grid, to make investments and to come up with, you know, and to be willing to share their power uh, when it's most valuable uh, to the grid and to their and to their neighbors. And that's where I think these uh, net metering conversations need to go.
0: Well, also based on that net metering conversation and some of the pushback to net metering, uh, it brings up one of the age-old questions that relates to renewable energy, right? And that is that renewable energy, or excuse me, th- distributed energy um, reduces the amount of, of electricity that utilities sell, right? So there's a fundamental kind of disconnect or, or uh, cross-purposes there for the utilities uh, in in seeing more distributed energy come onto the grid how do you bring the utilities in so that they also are incentivized to help promote this I mean again this is an old question but I'd love to hear what your perspective on it is
1: right I mean we know that that's really I think part of at the heart of of these cases is that utilities are viewing us as competition and so I'd, I'd say there's two things one, my view is, you know, util- many utilities are part of holding companies that have competitive affiliates, and they should look to their competitive affiliates and and start participating in in competition, right? And and looking at ways that they can also um, work through the competitive process to come up with innovations and, and be part of the solution that way. Um, as for the role of the sort of distribution system, which is critical, right? I mean, we need to have a core distribution system. Nobody, I mean, certainly it's not our view that we want everybody operating their own, you know, utility in their house, right? We do very firmly believe that the that the approach here should be grid services and integration. So that means in my view, there's there's a rule a role for distribution utilities to be essentially, if you want to call it the distribution system operator, you know, the way that we have RTOs and ISOs You know, at the wholesale level, it's a really important role because you know right now Sunrun is is I'd say the leader around the country for sure in uh, solar and batteries and looking at opportunities to do these aggregations and talking with utilities on grid services. But others are going to be following behind us, right? It's a very competitive you know um, uh, system, and so you know we know our other companies are all also working on putting together these offerings, and so you're going to start to have this ecosystem. Where there are many, many players who are all trying to continue to improve and offer new services to customers. And so we need to have, I'd say, you know, somebody conducting that orchestra, right? And that should be our utilities and they should be regulated by the public service commissions because you really that would be a monopoly, right? You would have one monopoly provider uh, to manage the grid. And it's very valuable, and they should get compensated for that. And I think also, you know, they should be allowed, again, as I said, to have competitive affiliates to participate. I don't think that you want to have the monopoly operator of the grid also being allowed on its own to compete with the competitors who are trying to get access to the grid. I mean, one of the big issues that we're going to need to make sure happens is that there's open access to that grid, right? And that you know, we have data that we need and that we're able to flourish, you know, in that ecosystem. And to do that, it means you've got, you know, a regulated grid um, where they are, you know, compensated for it. And and I think the other areas that are interesting now, and Hawaii is really in the lead on this, as well as New York, is, you know, continuing to look at incentive regulation, right, and recognizing, you know, what could we do to give utilities incentives to participate in this. And, you know, there have been creative ideas out there such as, you know, uh, basically, you know, shared savings. I know, I think it was in the Niagara Mohawk case a few years ago, rate case in New York. Uh, they were explicitly um, directed, you know, that utility to, to really work with third-party providers to look for solutions and non-wires alternatives and, and ways to improve the grid with the incentive that, you know, to the extent they reduce the cost of providing electricity to customers, uh, that they would benefit from that, you know, they would get a portion of that. And I think all of those sort of regulatory and, you know, improvements, you know, can make a big difference. But, you know, we're going to need strong leadership, you know, from regulators Uh, to push this forward because it really really isn't in the incentive of the utilities as they're compensated now, right? I mean, they basically make money through capital investment. (laughs) And so what we really don't want to have happening going back to the net metering discussion is to the extent we continue to have high levels of capital investment in the distribution system at a time when we know more and more people are going to want to go reduce their purchases from that system, you know, you are going to end up having very significant costs that I think could be avoided if we take the time to really look into the future, see what's coming, and figuring out what's the most efficient way uh, to operate that system.
0: Well, just one final question on this on this topic. Uh, in some states, um, the electric utilities have actually tried to enter the solar residential solar market directly. Uh, there's been pushback from the solar industry. What's your view on that?
1: Right. You know, I, I come again from, you know, the mid-Atlantic, right, which, you know, both as a regulator and even when I was, you know, an advocate uh, for PSENG, we were always advocating uh, for competitive markets, right? And for, you know, the fact that those markets have been restructured and you had pulled generation out and that the idea was that you were going to get more efficient results by uh, allowing competition. And I believe that. And like I said, from my own personal experience, my day-to-day experience working in different these different types of entities, there is a drive towards innovation and cost reduction when you allow competition. And my concern would be like, yes, if there's a market failure somewhere, if there's a place where there are not competitors coming in yet, um, then, you know, I can see some, a, a role where utilities can help um, if there's a nascent technology that, you know, there could be a, you know, a public benefit from. But for the most part, I think what utilities can do and, and their role is to operate that network and open it up and make sure, like, for instance, as I said, when we have a customer who wants a solar and battery, what we really need the, the utility to have, we need them, them to have excellent engineers who can make sure that, we can all interconnect quickly, right? That's what we need them to do. I don't think that we need the utilities to go and offer customers batteries and solar solar systems and have the ratepayers pay for it. Um, I just think that that is probably going to end up in a more costly solution um, and you're going to lose the advantage of having multiple players out there trying to do better than the other one. Now, I did want to address one issue, which is on, you know, access of Access to uh, these services from lower-income customers, and we're, you know, one of the one of the important mechanisms for that, like I said, have been these uh, leasing products, right? That that reduce the upfront capital expense, but we are also very focused on that in terms of just trying to work with public officials um, and public policy programs to try to figure out how you make that work, right? And, you know. Uh, One of the successful approaches in California has been, you know, they've got targeted programs for um, incentives for affordable multifamily housing. And so Sunrun has entered into that over the last year, and we're really excited about it, basically, where you know, we're able to use through virtual net metering to bring the advantage of solar that's now going to be, you know, on the top of these apartment buildings um, to the advantage of the renters. And so I think we're finding ways through smart policy incentives to be able to ensure that it's, you know, it's not just the homeowners who are going to have access. You know, we also know while, you know, Sunrun's not active in this market yet, you know, community solar is another mechanism where, you know, people who may not own a home are able to participate in solar. And I think that's what we really want, should be doing is, you know, continuing to look at those kind of innovations to expand access and not go to the, not take the approach where we're saying, all of a sudden we're going to need to rate base all of this because you're going to end up with, I just don't think you're going to get as an efficient outcome.
0: So Anna, a final question for you here. So as we're looking at the current situation we're in with, with COVID, Um, and the challenges that the industry faces. Um, What are your particular challenges that you're going to be looking at or dealing with going forward from this point?
1: Right, well, thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you today. You know, one of the challenges that we didn't really get to talk about um, is a challenge that probably everyone is facing right now who is uh, at, you know, stay home orders, which is, you know, how do you communicate? How do you continue to, as an advocate, advocate Uh, for the work that uh, you're doing. And one of the the concerns I'm going to have, you know, many of the uh, regulatory proceedings and legislative proceedings have been, you know, either put on hold or scaled down. We're certainly not having the, you know, in-person ability to go meet with legislators or to participate in working groups or stakeholder groups, you know, at commissions. And I think this is going to be a challenge particularly for organizations like, you know, the competitive solar companies or energy efficiency companies, you know, or advocates and environmental advocates uh, that do not have, you know, as many resources, honestly, as as some of the utilities do in these proceedings when you look at our issues. And we certainly want to make sure that there's still going to be an opportunity for advocates um, across the board to be able to give input to what are, you know, really critical policy decisions. We have to find a way that we're going to be able to have, you know, stakeholder proceedings if this, you know, if these restrictions have to continue on for, you know, any extended period. Because one of the things over time that's been very important, you know, in the solar industry has been, you know, the interest of the consumer being heard. And you know we have very strong uh, advocates from you know our employees, you know to people who have put solar on their homes, who really believe that this is a, a really critical um, part of our infrastructure that needs to be advanced, uh, particularly given the the challenges of climate change or or jobs related issues um, that are you know related to the the ability of solar to create so many jobs. So that's something that's on my mind. And, you know, I've been, you know, really happy to see, you know, the, the, how nimble folks have been on using things like, you know, Zoom and, and other technology to communicate. I certainly, you know, use it to, to communicate with my team across the country um, still. But for regulators out there, I would say, you know, let's please make sure we remember uh, the importance of consumers and, and advocates Uh, to participate in your proceedings so that as these, you know, important decisions, whether it's, you know, the future of the grid, net metering, consumer protection, any of those, um, that we have all the voices at the table and that uh, we use technology, you know, to the best of its ability uh, to enable that to happen.
0: And thanks very much for talking. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Energy Policy Now. Keep up to date on the latest research and blog posts from the Climate Center for Energy Policy by subscribing to our Twitter feed at Climate Energy. Or visit us on our website. Our address is climateenergy.upen.edu. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and have a great day.